Thanks, Sarah. And please make sure you've got Mark chapter 7 open. We're going to look at Mark chapter 7 and 8, we'll, although we will focus mostly on just chapter 7. Um, now, also, if you're after an outline and you're in the building, there's one up the back, and if you're in, in one of the other rooms, then there should be one up there available for you as well. Uh, let me pray for us. Our loving Father, we uh, always thank you when we come to your word because... In your word, you reveal yourself to us. You show us ourselves as well. Um, your word is, is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, Father, we pray that you would incisively speak to us tonight. That you would show us those areas of our hearts and our actions that need to change. Um, and then we ask that you would give us the will and the ability to change them for your glory's sake. And we pray in Jesus' name... Amen. Now, many of you will know that since last November, I've been dealing with persistent chest pains. Now, originally they thought I had a thing called pericarditis, which is just an inflammation. Well, it's not just an inflammation, it's an inflammation. And you treat by basically popping Nurofen all the time, and eventually that's meant to work after a couple of weeks, and you don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, but after further tests, I found out a few weeks ago that I've actually got don't have an infection that's going to go away, I've got a genetic heart condition that's called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, there will be a test on that later. Now, apparently, uh, and this will mean something to people who know anything about genes, it means nothing to me, that, but my MYBPC3 gene has got a mutation in it, and that causes a thickening in a part of my heart. Now, what does this all mean? Th there's... There's a whole bunch of things that they can do to address any symptoms that might arise from this condition. You know, there's medications they can give you, there's um, surgeries they can do, there's implants they can give you. But the thing is, is that because it's genetic, the mutation that causes it is never going to go away. And here's why, because there are 30 trillion cells in my body. And every single one of them has got the mutated gene. So that means that my genetic condition, because it's a genetic condition, is unfixable. And the only way for me to be rid of it would be if I was entirely remade without it. What we're going to see today, in today's passage, is that there is a far more serious heart problem that actually every single one of us has, and that every single one of us needs to come to terms with. It's a heart problem that actually needs a miracle of God to take it away. Now, one of the things that uh, we've noticed over the last couple of months, when you've been reading through Mark, is that you'll notice that while he seems to talk in a way that says, and this happened, and then this happened, and this happened, there's actually a lot of structure to the way Mark does things. He regularly sets up patterns in the way that he groups the events of Jesus' ministry. Well, let me tell you, Mark's doing it again. And if you've especially got a paper Bible in front of you, it'll be easy for you to sort of look over and see it. Um, see, last week, um, Tony taught us from Mark chapter 6, where Jesus, remember, feeds 5,000 people in the wilderness... And then there's uh, the dramatic boat ride where Jesus walks on water and we're told that the disciples' hearts were hardened. All right? Mark that. Oh, that was a pun. Not intended. Anyway, and, and then when we come to chapter 8, have a look at it. 
you're going to read about Jesus feeding 4,000 in the wilderness with loaves and fish, followed by a boat ride where the disciples are challenged about having hard hearts. It's like we're getting that and then we're getting a different version of that over here. Now, that means we've got sort of two parallel stories that set up a framework. And so the question we need to ask is, what is the framework framing? Well, as we learned last week, when the whole teaching about Jesus feeding a multitude in the wilderness, passing by the disciples, walking across the sea as if it's on dry land, that's meant to remind us of something significant that happened in the Old Testament. The great work of salvation in the history of the Jewish people, their redemption from slavery in Egypt in the Exodus. Well, it appears that the Exodus parallels don't just stop there. God brought them out of Egypt. Why? To take them to the land that he promised, yes, but also because he wanted to meet with them that they might worship him. And that's what happens at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. God's people gather around him and he gives to them his law. And that law enabled an unholy people to dwell in the presence of a holy God. Why am I telling you that? Because that's what Jesus does right now. He's going to gather people around him and he's going to teach them about what makes a person clean or unclean. Jesus is going to now, in the middle of this framework, do a Moses, do a God and lay down the law. See, now, when in the back, back in the books of Moses, when God sets up the priesthood of Moses' brother Aaron and his sons, he sets them up and he gives them a very serious responsibility. We read about it in the book of Leviticus. He says, you, you guys, are to, as leaders of my people, are to stay clear-minded, Leviticus 10 verse 10, so that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And so you can teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. God's people needed to take being clean in the presence of God very seriously. And it was the job of the priests, of the leaders of God's people, to make sure they knew the distant difference. And the, but the Pharisees now, they see themselves as now inheritors of that, as custodians of Jewish cleanliness. And they tended to take a very dim view of anyone who they thought were violating this idea of cleanliness amongst the people of God. And that sets the scene for the fight that we're about to read about. Verses 1 and 2. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and, some saw, um, and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, in the Old Testament, it was only the priests who had to wash their hands. And they had to do that so that they could be ceremonially clean while handling the food that was prepared for sacrifice. But the tradition of the Pharisees has now extended that command, and they've extended that command to include all meals and every Jewish person, not just the priests. Now, you might sort of go, well, especially now that we, are, we will be the most hygienic generation for decades, all right? We know about washing hands and we take it seriously. But the thing is, is that they didn't do it for hygiene reasons like we're doing it. We're doing it so that you don't get COVID. They're not doing it for that. They didn't do it to protect their physical health. They did it to protect their spiritual health. 
It wasn't about getting rid of dirt. It was about ritually cleansing yourself of unclean things that may have come in contact with you during the day. Like other people. Like Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Like people that you deem to be sinners. Like unclean animals. Or even if a bug crawls over your hand. Or maybe you touch something that had some mould in it or some blood. And so that's why in particular they would wash when they came back from the marketplace because you never know who you bumped into. You never know what grotty individual or what uh, immoral person you might have come in contact with without knowing. You never know who's touched the coin that you've touched and exchanged it. So every time you went home from the marketplace, full-on washing. Well, the disciples haven't done this. They didn't do the ceremonial washing before eating. And the Pharisees, they are, they're repulsed by Jesus. Because here's a man who clearly doesn't take holiness that seriously. He teaches his followers to flaunt the customs of the people. He is encouraging them to be unclean. And so they rebuke him for it. Look at verse 5. Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? Instead of eating their food with defiled hands. Now, it's important that we understand what they're talking about when they're talking about the tradition of, el- of the elders. It's not, they're not just saying what we're used to doing. All right? It's not a mild form of tradition. It's a very formal one. The Old Testament law that you read in the first five books of the Bible was, of course, really important. But the Pharisees, and this will amaze you if you've ever read the book of Leviticus, they thought it was too vague. They didn't feel like it spelt out enough details so much so that they thought you couldn't really apply it to all of the everyday circumstances you come across in life. And so what that meant is over time what the rabbis did is they built up an oral tradition of teaching where they would give interpretations and verdicts on the law that tried to apply the biblical law to every every situation they could possibly conceive of. But the critical thing to understand is that for the Pharisees, over time, this oral tradition was considered just as authoritative as the Bible itself. Just as authoritative as the law of Moses was their interpretation of what they thought the law of Moses or how they thought it applied to everyday life. Now, eventually they wrote all of this Pharisaic tradition down in order to preserve it, and that's what's known as the Mishnah, if you've heard of that. Now, let me tell you, it is huge. My copy of the Mishnah is 789 pages long. And it is very, very specific. Do you know that the rules related to washing vessels alone is 45 pages? 45 pages of specific laws about how to wash a vessel. There is, compared to that, washing hands is only seven pages long. So if you've had to read a paragraph on how to wash your hands appropriately for COVID, forget about it. That is nothing. Seven pages on how you are to ritually wash your hands. Now, I'm going to read an excerpt or two of it it in the podcast tomorrow and you'll get the picture. Well, the Pharisees saw their tradition. Why did they do this? They saw it as being kind of a fence that you'd place around God's law. They thought that by building these, these extra specifications of how it all applied, that they would be protecting God's law from being violated. But what Jesus is about to point out is that they actually did the opposite. What they built around the law broke God's law. 
And Jesus is certainly not going to get lectured on law-keeping by these people. So have a look at verse 6 to 8. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it's written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. If you're picturing somebody perhaps selecting fruit at a fruit market, it's like the Pharisees have picked up the word of God and God's commands and gone, nope, I'm putting that down, I'm going to pick up the laws that we've made up. Now, the word hypocrite, as I've mentioned in previous talks, it means actor, all right? It's about putting on a show. Well, Jesus tells these religious officials that they're a bunch of actors and that they're no different from the false prophets and from the unhelpful priests of Isaiah's time 800 years earlier. In fact, so much so that Isaiah's prophecy, Jesus says, you know what? It's actually talking about you. He directly applies Isaiah's prophecy to these people. Now, one of the themes of Isaiah is that God was judging Israel for their fake religion. And what, it, what his problem was is that they, when, while they were poor and the needy, they're going hungry, injustice was rife, corruption was everywhere, but they still went through the motions of their religion. So they're still rocking up to the temple and they're still offering sacrifices and thinking themselves holy while they're doing all of this other stuff on the side. And so while they were honouring God with their lips, their hearts were a long way from him. Their worship was vain, it was all appearance. It had all the substance of Hollywood. But in the passage from which Jesus is quoting Isaiah 29, if you read further as we did, you'll see that God is going to bring about a time of reversals as well, where hidden things are going to be exposed. Verse 15 of Isaiah 29, Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? Well, what Isaiah is saying is God knows and God doesn't like it. And he's going to call it to account. The Pharisees take these traditions that the scribes have invented over time so seriously, but they have also neglected the things that God really cares about. His commands to love God and neighbour. Their focus wasn't on God where it should be, but on their own activity. And Jesus cites a very important example to prove his point. That is the command, one of the Ten Commandments, the command to honour your father and mother. Have a look at verse 9. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside, and the word is stronger, the word means to actively rebel against. So he's saying, you have a fine way of rebelling against the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Because Moses said, honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. In other words, not only does God in his law command that you honour your father, Jesus is saying, but the command is so serious that when Moses was talking about the punishment for it, it was pretty big. And he's saying, and yet look at what the Pharisees teach. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down 
and you do many things like that. Now, let me explain what he's talking about there. The, the Corban vow was a scribal tradition. It was one of these traditions. And Jesus' example here refers to the obligation of a son to provide for his parents in their old age. Sometimes, in order to avoid this, a son could dedicate, for example, his property to God. I guess it's kind of the first century equivalent of putting your assets in your wife's name in order to avoid having to give it to a liquidator or to get taxed on it. In other words, the man could still benefit from his use of the property, but he was no longer allowed to sell it because, oh, I've devoted it to the Lord, right? Now, the scribal tradition said that the obligation to keep that vow of dedicating it to God, Corban, as it was called, actually overrode the command that God had given to honour your father and mother. And so from that point, even if the man wanted to sell his property to provide for his parents, the scribes, wouldn't, the scribes would not allow it if he had dedicated it. Once it's got that Corban valor, it's locked away, even if you don't, if you want to undo what you've just said. And so as Jesus pointed out, instead of honouring father and mother, their tradition actually encourages people to dishonour them. It's doing the, the absolute opposite of what, the, of what God's command wanted. The explicit command of God is actively overruled by their man-made tradition. It's a brilliant example that Jesus uses. But before we move on, let's do a little bit of reflection. What do you think? Can, can Christians do the same kind of thing? What are some of the man-made traditions that we have that push the commands of God into the background? I was pondering that this week and, and one of the clearest parallels that I can actually think of, of, of really closely of what Jesus is criticising here, is, is Christian liberalism. And that is, sadly, that's not uncommon in Anglican churches in Australia or around the world, but it's also common in other, other denominations as well. Liberal Christianity maintains a delight in ceremony and the liturgy and in ornate robes and dressing up in those things and wearing your clerical collar whenever you get the opportunity and cathedrals and sacred spaces. Very, very religious. Liberal Christianity even talks piously about love and unity and worship but then in word and in practice explicitly and boldly overturns what God has said is right or wrong. What is God has spoken clearly in his word to say is moral or immoral. They will flip it on its head and say the opposite. They will deny the authority of God's word. And then they will even slander or persecute those amongst them that would uphold God's word. Now, Tell me that that is not honouring God with one's lips while it's maintaining a heart that actively rebels against his rule as he has expressed it in his word. But we can all be vulnerable to this human conceit and it's worth pondering. Any time that I avoid doing what God explicitly says he wants me to do, while claiming some kind of moral high ground while I'm doing that, that fits well and truly into this Pharisaic box. 
I guess you could say that Phariseeism is when we make an idol out of our cultural practices or beliefs or traditions so that we actually feel righteous when we're disobeying the Word of God. Now, if you detect that in yourselves, what do you do? Or if it's pointed out to you, what do you do? Well, what we need to do is we need to listen very carefully to that correction and make the changes that we need to make and repent. Well, the Pharisees are hypocrites whose hearts are far from God. But Jesus is also concerned at the misunderstanding that their teaching has had on all of the people that have heard it and not, and not just heard it immediately but have heard it for hundreds of years. The whole hand-washing thing actually reveals another serious error. And in fact, it's so serious that Jesus says, right, stop everything. He calls the crowd. He says, come in, gather around me. I need to tell you something. And you need to listen and you need to make sure you understand this. He's about to teach the people about what separates the holy from the common. The uncleanness that concerns God doesn't originate outside of a person, but inside them. Verse 14, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. Now, the disciples don't get it for a change. And you get the impression that their slowness is starting to irritate Jesus just a little bit. Verse 18, are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. And saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And it's kind of saying, look, you could eat a bucket of dirt and in a day or two it's out of your system. That kind of uncleanness is temporary and it is purely physical. When God speaks of uncleanness, that's not what he's talking about. So, for instance, in the Old Testament laws, they didn't declare eating a lizard to be unclean because God thought lizards were icky. All right? The laws were there so that Israel could demonstrate that they were not like the nations around them. They were to eat what God said they could eat to show that they were obedient to him and that they were set apart as his. The orientation of their heart, in other words, was to determine what they would eat, not the other way round. It was hearts devoted to him that God was actually concerned about. The uncleanness God cares about is uncleanness of the heart, not the stomach. An unclean heart is what separates a person from God. And so that's where Jesus now moves. He moves to the heart, which in biblical language is basically talking about is our will, the seed of our will. Real uncleanness, the stuff that really needs cleansing, is, in, is within. Verse 20, he went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. 
the uncleanness that makes us unfit to stand before a holy God is in our hearts. They're the origin of the whole lot, of everything evil, whether it's thought or whether it's word or action. Uh, you know when people talk about, I've heard this a little bit, that, that phrase when you get the fake apologies out there and on, uh, say, oh, uh, look, I'm, I'm sorry, that's not the real me. You know when you hear that sort of language? The Bible says, no, that is the real you. you the, the actions that you do have come from within you. It is a revelation of something that's going on inside. So when we murder, this is where it starts. And when we commit adultery, this is where it starts. And when we envy others or we slander them or when we're arrogant or greedy or thieving or malicious or deceitful, it started with our hearts. Hearts that have not been dedicated to God or godly. More than that, a heart that's opposed to him. A heart that when it gets compared to God's heart is filthy and stained. A heart that's desires have been polluted or mixed. And that is what makes us unclean in God's eyes. Now, isn't that a contrast to our world that says, look, everyone's inherently good, apart from bad people. Um, People are inherently good. Jesus says, no. If you actually look at our hearts, they're not clean and shiny, they're corrupted by sin and wickedness. Now, you might say that's, that's a bit harsh, it's a bit negative. It might be negative, but it's true. I want you to think about this. You know, um, have you ever seen someone taking a strong-willed dog out for a walk? You know, and, and they're, they're going, it's, it's not nice and led by the side, it's, 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 they're going out there, they're stopping at this pillar over there, they're doing that, they're, they're wanting to run across the road and, and get angry at the other dog that's across the street. Um, so if you've got that picture in your head, I want you to think about it. You don't have to restrain the uncontrollable goodness within to do something wrong, do you? We don't have to fight hard against our insatiably pure natures in order to actually step across the line and do something wrong. No, doing wrong comes naturally. It's easy. No, we have to restrain our ungodly desires in order to consistently do what is right. We've got to remind ourselves we've got to keep certain things on the leash, so to speak, because we know that if we don't, they will take charge. One of them takes more effort and self-control than the other. And it is not our goodness that's raging out of control. We default towards ungodliness. And deep down we know it. And that's why you locked your car tonight. And that's why if you leave your wallet at a bus stop, you're not expecting it to be handed in. And it's why you don't encourage vulnerable people to walk the streets alone at night in the dark. They should be safe, but will they? Humanity has a deadly heart condition. And it makes the foolishness of the Pharisees' indignation at the disciples, oh, they haven't cleansed their hands, it looks comic. Especially when you know already in Mark's Gospel that these very people have gone out and conspired with the followers Herod to kill Jesus, to murder him. But hey, your disciples haven't washed their hands, that's the big issue. As Jesus accuses them in Matthew's Gospel, you've strained out a gnat but you've swallowed a camel. You're whitewashed tombs, Jesus says. On the outside, you're clean and bright, but on the inside, you're full of dead bodies. The Pharisees thought that their traditions ensured their cleanness. So much so that they actually used these traditions to exclude so many people, to keep people 
in their minds on the outside, who they felt were under unclean, who they assumed to be under the judgment of God while they were safe, when the reality is that they were the ones who were far away from the kingdom. But on top of that, they felt that those were far away, but on top, sorry, those who, that they felt were far away, it turns out were a whole lot closer than they thought they were going to be. So did you notice the massively significant line that Mark just slips in there at the end of verse 19? Jesus now declares all foods clean. So you mean 2,000 years or certainly 1,500 years of the law that says some foods are unclean. This moment, Jesus says, no, under my own authority, I am now declaring them to be clean. This is humongous. This is, this is epoch-shifting. He has now declared all foods clean. That means that with the coming of the Messiah, the kingdom of God is no longer going to be confined to just the Jewish people, made distinct from other nations by physical signs and food laws, but is actually going to be able to reach out to include people of other nations. The kingdom of God would consist of people that have been made fit to come near to God in worship not by me being made ceremonially and externally clean, but by being made spiritually and internally clean by Jesus himself. And the next three incidents hint that this expansion of the kingdom of God is just about to begin. Because each of these new in next incidents, as Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, bringing blessing to the Gentile world. Now, I've broken it up for you on the outline. Um, but for time reason, I'm just going to show us the movement. We'll deal with more of it in the podcast tomorrow. So have a look there. So if you've got your Bibles open, 724 to 30, um, having rebuked the Pharisees, Jesus travels to the Gentile region of Tyre on the Lebanese coast. And there, what does he do? He drives out the unclean spirit from the daughter of a Greek woman, Gentile woman, who begged for his help. And so what you get is a Gentile girl made clean from the inside by the Jewish Messiah. She has now been made ready for worship. But she's Greek. And he then goes to Sidon. And let me tell you, if you read the Old Testament, Sidon has a very bad reputation. Again, it's an unclean and Gentile city. And they beg Jesus to help. This time, a man um, who was deaf and mute. And Jesus touches this man and he unblocks his ears so that he can hear and he unblocks his mouth so that he can speak. Not a random miracle, but one of deep significance as the man has now got ears that can listen and a tongue that can speak clearly. He now has ears to hear. He now has a tongue to proclaim. He can hear Christ and preach him and the kingdom. And the people throughout that region also speak, verse 37. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He's done everything well. Jesus, everything Jesus does is he brings healthiness. He brings goodness to everything and everyone he touches. He is a cleansing, healing presence. And so we come to the third scene where Jesus travels from Gentile Tyre and Gentile Sidon to Gentile Decapolis on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And what does he do there? Exactly the same thing that he did on the Jewish side of the lake. He shows his compassion as he feeds the multitude 
in the wilderness. So the God who saved his people, the Jews, is now on the other side of the sea, saving Gentiles too. In Jesus, God's blessing is coming to the nations in fulfilment of the promise of Abraham to Abraham. It's a huge thing. It's a huge movement. Friends, all of humanity, Jew or Gentile, has a heart problem. Because from our hearts are where our sin resides and, and out from which our sinful actions and attitudes spring. It's our hearts that separate us from God and make us unfit for worship. So our hearts are what needs fixing. But Jesus has shown that he's the one who can and does make unclean things clean. Whether they're Jewish or Gentile. He can drive out our uncleanness from the inside. Open our deaf ears. Loosen our bound tongues that we might gather around him and be blessed. But we haven't yet heard from Jesus about how he's going to do all of this. How does he cleanse our hearts from sin? Well, that startling moment is going to come next week when Jesus discloses just what the cost will be for our heart cleansing. And that will be his own perfect life given in exchange for ours. The cleanness of the clean, shedding his innocent blood for the sake of the unclean and the guilty. Now, later on, Jesus would commission a former Pharisee, the Apostle Paul, to be his messenger to the Gentile world. And Paul would bring them this beautiful word in the book of Ephesians. Remember, this is a former Pharisee saying this, and hear how revolutionary it is. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the prominent, uh, so the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, friends, the first question for everyone listening has to be this. Have you come to Jesus and asked him to cleanse you? You have a heart problem, it needs doing. Have you actually come to Jesus and asked him to cleanse you, to take your sin-diseased heart and make it completely new? If that is what you long for, ask him because it's what he came to do. And do it tonight and let someone know that you've done it. You who have been far away can be brought near to the living God, forever made fit for worship. Just ask for his forgiveness and put your faith in Christ. But for all of us, when you consider the cost of our cleansing... You can see why Jesus has no time for the Pharisees' trivialities and hypocrisy because he knew what he was going to do to pay for this and to really make us clean. We Christians need to be on our guard for the same kinds of things. 
Though made clean and though we are reassured that the good work that God has begun in us, he will bring to completion until the day of Christ. We also know that this side of heaven, our hearts will still be drawn to what they shouldn't. So if you're stumbling with sin a little bit at the moment, I want to say, yes, address your behaviour. Do that promptly. But even as you do, you need to recognise that there is a more important question that you should be asking yourself. And that is, what truth of the gospel is my heart ignoring or denying? So in other words, if I have tripped over because of, of, into lust or greed or malice or envy, or something like that. Sure, stop doing it. Work on that sinful action, yes. And stay away from it. But more importantly, you've got to ask an internal operations question, and that is you've got to look to the heart solution because it's actually the symptom of a heart problem. So go to what the heart thing is. Examine yourself and ask, what's the heart issue here? Let me put it in the positive. What is my clean heart solution to this? How do I foster a heart that is prepared to trust God? How, how can I foster a heart that's prepared to wait for his timing instead of taking it for myself? Because that's what my issue has been. I need to foster a heart that's prepared perhaps to leave justice to God instead of taking it myself. I need to foster a heart that knows that God sees what's going on and so I don't need to self-promote all the time or envy other people's advances. What do I not believe about God's wisdom such that I would go to a lie instead? What do I not believe that God will give? What do I not believe that God will provide for me, physically or emotionally? You see what I mean? It's what's the heart thing that's leading me to do this? Work on that and you will find it so much easier to deal with the expression of it. Because you see, when we stumble, the cause is not the thing that we tripped over. It's the heart that had us looking in the wrong direction so that we didn't see it. So I'm going to finish, and I'm going to finish by praying that God will give us a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within us. And, and in fact, I'm going to pray David's wonderful prayer at the end of Psalm 139 for us. And I want us to pray this confident in the Father who loves us, the Son who has cleansed us, and the Spirit, knowing the Spirit of holiness actually dwells within us. Let me pray. Our loving Father, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.